and then the Middle East and Ukraine is still there. These are all things that are very disruptive and make people nervous. And as we've seen since the very, very beginning of the Ukraine invasion by Russia, affects gas prices, affects wheat prices, affects grain, affects food, um, and, and it will affect oil. I, I just don't see war as anything but negative 100% across the board for people, for families, for children, for stability, for economies. I mean, these things are terrible. And, um, you know, we've got, what, two, three, maybe four, you know, hotspots right now in the globe. And that's just bad news that there's no way around that. It's it breeds it's, nothing but instability and, and sadness. I, I just, yeah. you know, it's terrible. Hey, Scott. How are you? Hello, Michael. Hello. Good to see you. A nice sunny day after heavy rains. Uh, very nice in the Bay Area. Quite beautiful. I think this is yes. why we're all here, this kind of day. So let's begin with, uh, I think, the biggest news of the week, at least locally, at least in tech, and that is uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise in, has agreed, or Juniper Networks has agreed to be bought by Hewlett Packard Enterprise for $14 billion. That's a $40 share price. Now, I have to admit, even though I wrote the book about HP, I don't think about HP much anymore. You know, it's sort of receded into history. It's split up. I know HP Enterprises has been doing pretty well, but Juniper Networks has been a hot company around here. And uh, it's made a lot of acquisitions in the last few years. And for old, mature HP you know, piece of HP to suddenly reach out and buy it up is a is an interesting news item. It's like something reemerged from the depths of the past. Yeah, but I think it also tells you how fast tech moves. That if Juniper is like your dad, because Juniper, remember, caught fire during the dot com boom and it went public and yeah. it had one of the hottest IPOs ever, and then it split again. It was just absolutely on fire. And then it kind of went off the radar. But yeah. if it's your dad, obviously HP Enterprises is your grandfather. And so, you know, it's a previous generation, even from Juniper, which has been superseded by hotter security companies and networking companies. Juniper, remember, actually took some of that market share away from companies like Cisco and Hewlett Packard. And so to see that union now is A, to kind of remember a, a past when networking companies were really red hot. Uh, but also, like you say, oh, HPE is still doing things, it's still spending money. And I hope what it means is that those people at Juniper will still have their jobs, um, despite that company not being as hot as it was. Um, but also perhaps HPE getting into what Juniper has been getting into a lot, which is cybersecurity. And really, there are few things hotter these days than cybersecurity. Well, according to analysts, there's a little bit of overlap, but there's an awful lot of synergies. And this seems to be part of what we're going to see in the next few months, which is everybody's rushing in, in network to 5G. And they're going to put AI on 5G and create really smart networks. That's one impetus. And the other one is companies just don't want to pay for that equipment anymore. They would much rather lease it, put it on the cloud, that sort of thing. And, and these two companies seem to be moving in that direction. I mean, I used to say co big companies in the Valley never come back. 
but they have begun to come back. And uh, if Juniper was the NVIDIA of a decade ago, you know, it might still have some of that mojo. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and I think as it's moved towards security, it becomes relevant for some of the things you just said, networking, AI, cloud, all of those things becoming more important, but also more vulnerable and therefore more in need of security. And that was sort of uh, Juniper's bag for, for a long time. So maybe there is, is new life to breathe into this company. Well, I think, you know, the spirit of uh, Bill and Dave may be looking down, you know, <laughs> affectionately to see that, you know, HP finally get its act back together. Okay, let's go. Let's talk about the economy because things are getting kind of weird now. Uh, they've been talking recently, we came off this, last year was supposed to be kind of a a, a messy year and, and there was concerns about the economy and it turned out to be a roaringly successful year. And uh, Christmas shopping was way up. All the stocks went way up and everyone was saying, well, I think we're heading into in 2024, maybe a Goldilocks economy. Not too hot, not too cold. The words soft landing were being used. Uh, but all of a sudden in the last week, it's been thrown into doubt again. I mean, uh, inflation went up a little bit. It was supposed to keep going down. If inflation goes up, does that mean the Fed doesn't intervene or it or again raises interest rates? And if that happens, the market seems to be living off good news about the Fed. Was a market turnaround? And yet on the news Thursday about inflation, the market went up. So I don't know what to read from that. At the same time, we have the big companies in the Valley are doing great, we think. And yet uh, this week, Google laid off several, was how many people was it? Hundreds. Uh, several hundred, and, yeah. Yeah, and even shut down the, the child care center. Uh, is that a, is that them just cutting the fat from overgrowth last year, or is that because they're nervous? I note that Amazon, in a different world, you know, mainly TV and and uh, movies, they're doing layoffs. What's going on here? Twenty percent of the office office spaces in the valley are empty. Is that because people are working at home, or is that because companies are quietly slowing down? I don't know what to read out of all this. I mean, it's a lot of questions. I think if we take the office vacancies, I think the quick answer is yes, people are still working at home. Remember, the job rate is still high. There are a lot of jobs being created. The unemployment rate is low. So it's not like these businesses are empty because people are not working. They're working. They're still working from home. And that's been the way for a while. Um, you're starting to see companies really try in some cringeworthy ways to get people back to work, but they are trying. As for a company like Google laying off, I think it is a combination both of um, trying to trim to keep profits high, but also nervousness. I mean, look, you know, inflation has not gone away. And we talk about a Goldilocks economy largely because jobs are still strong. Um, wages are still strong. The stock market is still strong. Heck, even Bitcoin is still strong. But prices are Forty-six thousand dollars now. Well, they got their ETF, and and so it was even up to about forty-nine thousand for a for a tick. I mean, people are getting what they want, even in the crypto world. But look, prices are still high, and when we talk to people, that's what they say. 
uh, housing prices, car prices, vacation prices, down to grocery prices. Everything is still high because inflation, while maybe growing more slowly than before, is still there. And that makes people and businesses and probably the Federal Reserve nervous. So I wonder if all of those interest rate cuts that everyone was so optimistic about in December are indeed on the docket, or if now the Fed is taking a step back and saying, well, if we cut while inflation is still going up, even slowly, does that exacerbate the problem of high prices? Um, or does it lower prices, but you know, raise, say, the mortgage rate? So there are still a lot of moving parts here, even in what could be called a fairly Goldilocks economy. Yeah, and the markets have got to be, I mean, they're acting like bulls still. They they see a, a real upside to the economy in 2024, and it can't hurt that cyber is now on the market. The, the, the Bitcoin ETF caused, I think it, it attracted $500 million worth of buyers in the first 30 minutes. That's That's got to make, uh, you know, traders pretty happy these days on the other hand we have some we have some real uh, bears out there uh, JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon warns American to be me Amer warns America to be ready for a return to the 1970s of course he said that last year too and was proven completely wrong but I also know Deutsche Bank has been saying since October it's starting to look messy out there with you know a war in the in the uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, the Chinese economy in serious trouble it appears, uh, and the Straits of Hormuz. You know, shipping can't get through there, so oil's backing up. A lot of economies around the world are in recession right now, and the United States keeps swimming against that tide. Right. I mean, we in our bubble will say, "Hey, we're selling a lot of." EVs and people shopped for Christmas and they're still buying groceries even as prices go higher. But you've got these, I won't call them black swan events because they're lasting a long time. Um, but you do have wars and you have, you know, transport in the Red Sea cut back because of, you know, hoodies and, and the the ships and then the Middle East and Ukraine is still there. These are all things that are very disruptive and make people nervous. And as we've seen since the very, very beginning of the Ukraine invasion by Russia, affects gas prices, affects wheat prices, affects grain, affects food, um, and, and it will affect oil. I I just don't see war as anything but negative 100% across the board for people, for families, for children, for stability, for economies. I mean, these things are terrible, and, um, you know, and we've got what, two, three, maybe four, you know, hotspots right now in the globe. And that's just bad news that there's no way around that. It's it breeds it, nothing but instability and and sadness. I, I just, yeah. you know, it's terrible. Well, if Hezbollah steps in now, too, that could the whole Middle East could erupt, which would be right. two major. We got one major one and one fairly minor one in the world. We could have two major ones. And uh I don't know. Uh, on the positive side, the United States seems to be in the best position of any country in the world to weather whatever economic storm and actually come out on top. Uh, situation here looks, you know, it's, it's 
difficult, but it's not as difficult as everywhere else, it seems. I think largely, um, and I don't say this as economists because I'm not, but when I talk to people, the big, big differentiator is whether or not you have a job and to go beyond that, whether or not you have benefits like healthcare, because that cushions a lot of the blow of groceries going up or even gas going up. And again, these price hikes do hit people and, and I don't want to you know, make that less important, but if you have a job, and right now our unemployment rate is low. Uh, if you have a job, it makes everything else easier to handle, price-wise at least. And so were that to change, I think our economic outlook as a country would change. But so far with the job numbers so strong, um, you know, not only is that what, say, Joe Biden is trying to ride to re-election, but that is what I think um, you know, a lot of consumers are feeling good about, uh, whether it was shopping for Christmas presents or you know, shopping for day-to-day -day things at the grocery store. You know, one of the things that I'm going to play devil's advocate just for a second, but the government has now recalculated last quarter's employment growth downwards, and a sizable percentage of those jobs are government jobs. So is it helping the economy? Is the employment levels helping the economy as much as we like to think it is? We also know that employers have been polled and they've they estimate that they're going to reduce raises next year from 4.4% on average to 4%. I'm just throwing all this into the pot because I have no idea how to read all of this. Because the really smart people sitting there on Wall Street are going, yeah, things are looking great. The invest, invest, invest. You know, so and those guys have all the data in the world. They have more data than the feds do. So I don't know what to what to conclude from all this. Do you? No, because I make it a point not to crystal ball these things. <laughs> and I think that's what keeps me safe. And I just, I can't even begin to try to guess what's coming up. Because look, like I just said, there's so much instability right now. That makes me nervous going forward. Um, it makes me nervous about gas prices. It makes me nervous about food prices. It makes me nervous about just human life. I mean, these things are very, very uh, unstable. And um, and so we have a lot of that as we head into, you know, what, what is now our new year. Um, and so, yeah, Wall Street may look good now, but who knows? And I think it's so hard to look ahead um, and guess what's going to happen. But remember, you started the show by saying a year ago, everyone was saying, well, get ready for job loss and inflation and all that stuff that did not happen. And now that we've had a year... Right. Well, we've had a year where we should feel happier about the economy. And what do people say in surveys? They don't like the economy. So you're just not going to win. <laughs> okay. In other news, uh, China just took the lead in EV sales, surpassing Japan. Uh, if you watch YouTube, though, you can watch all of those rather cheap Chinese uh, battery-powered vehicles spontaneously combusting all over China. And uh, there's a lot of concerns about the quality of those those cars. And most of them are getting sold into Russia. So I'm not sure if that is it that suggests that China has taken a clear lead in this. I mean they even have some I mean they have some good Tesla uh counterparts over there to, to try to drive Elon out of China. But does this matter at all that China is the leader in EVs and, and has passed the U.S. and most of all Japan? 
Well, look, as someone who wants the climate to be cleaner, I would say, sure, why not? I mean, the more EVs, the better. I don't care where they come from. Um, I just want more EVs on the road. And, you know, China has always been a, a tough nut to crack when it comes to American products. And, you know, iPhones do well, but, you know, the Chinese government wants its own phone sold. Same with Teslas and EVs. And I get that. And without getting geopolitical, I would just say, um, you know, the, the fewer emissions, the better. Um, and I know that lithium ion batteries, if that's what you're talking about, have that fire concern. Uh, they catch fire far less often than other cars that are not EVs but they sometimes tend to burn longer. Um, I did a story just last week on uh, the Mountain View Fire Department right on the peninsula here in Silicon Valley that has a new way of fighting those fires much more quickly by actually poking something into the battery and then soaking it, uses a lot less water, puts it out much faster, and, uh, and is therefore safer, and it allows the fire department to get done with one fire and move on to something else. So that's encouraging. Um, again, for a type of car that catches fire less often. Uh, but I think the bottom line is if we have entire countries fighting over who's selling the most EVs, yeah. all I'm going to do is say, great, go team, whatever team, put more EVs on the road. That's what we need. But we do know, unlike Japan, China is actively working against American EV makers, notably Tesla, selling their products anymore in there. You're not allowed to be a member of the Chinese government, which is most of the country, and drive a Tesla anymore. And the claim is always, oh, well, because they they, they steal information or whatever it is. But this is a kind of backdoor uh, tariff or embargo right. Right. On, on these cars. I mean, should we be doing reciprocity on that? You can't ship that uh, Chinese car EV here. If you're going to pull that kind of stunt? It's hard to say. Um, remember, the last time tariffs were really in the news were when uh, President Trump was in office. And he put those yeah. tariffs on, on you know, aluminum, uh, I think steel, right? And yeah. it was sort of a back and forth thing. And some were happy about it. Some were unhappy. But just to see tariffs in the news was something that we hadn't seen in a while. I, I don't know. I mean, look, we're on the precipice of a possible... Trump presidential campaign again, right? I mean, he could be president again come November, who knows? But um, will we see more tariffs against China? We just had, you know, a whole administration with, without really raising tariffs. I, so I, I don't know. Um, but China has all has been that way for as long as I can remember uh, in terms of products, their products versus American products. And I, I don't know if tariffs are the way to, to break through that. It doesn't seem like that ends up helping anybody all that much. It seems to me tariffs, unless you go crazy like smooth hauling, uh, it's which sets the whole world under depression, it's usually a negotiating position. Uh, but it's interesting to note that, you know, American, car, American cars, which apparently are much superior in terms of in EVs at least, than the Chinese ones, are having a hell of a time selling any it, because the government is actively punishing people for buying them. Right. And that is one way that uh, you can ensure that your products are sold. Um, do we go back to, as you say, a hundred year old tariff that, that, you know, eventually led us into a depression? I, I would say probably not. Um, 
but right, I, I don't don't really know because it's certainly true that American tech companies love to sell products in China. Um, yeah. And I guess who suffers, the companies suffer to an extent, the Chinese consumer, I would say, suffers to a larger extent because they want to get their hands on iPhones and, and probably Teslas. Um, you're talking about a, you know, a society that's making a lot of money, that likes technology, that wants to buy the coolest products, um, and this keeps that from happening. So I don't know who gives into pressure eventually on that, but I, I just haven't seen, um, and maybe I should have been a better student of history, but I just haven't seen the tariffs have been all that successful when put into play. No, especially between developed countries. You know, yeah. a, new, a rising new economy sometimes can leverage success off of protecting their own production, but two mature economies doing that to each other is almost always a disaster. Okay, and finally, uh, the Sam Altman scandal at OpenAI, you know, where he got fired and then he came back five days later. Apparently, it's having a ripple effect across the American economy, especially among high-tech new startups, where the entrepreneur slash CEO, they're getting real worried these days how they can protect themselves from a board of directors that turns on them. And they're trying to implement all of these, you know, uh, hidden bombshells and, and traps to keep the boards from firing them. I don't know what that means in the long term, but it's an interesting short-term phenomenon created by this one guy. And we're still not entirely sure why he got fired. We kind of know why he came back because they couldn't do it without him. But we don't know the whole story. And yet we're seeing all these guys in these storefront and garage startups going, well, we better we better put a lasso around the board of directors before anything happens here. You know, you said it yourself. What's the best protection? Make sure that the can't, the company can't do it without you. In other words, be a really good founder and CEO that makes people want to work for you and make people do good things. The other thing that I think we learned from the Altman fiasco is really you need to set out in clear, definite terms what your company is all about. If you're going to be um, an altruistic protector of the realm and, you know, make sure AI doesn't get out of control. Yeah. That's cool unless you take hundreds of millions of dollars in funding and become the leader in accelerationist AI. And not to get too, too deeply into that battle, but, you know, really just lay out what you want to do. Be a CEO that is not irreplaceable because that doesn't exist, but that people want to trust and want to work for Look, we've often seen with a lot of these companies, the CEOs create for themselves a whole different category of stock, right? And it makes them all but unthrowoutable. And I don't think that's healthy. I really don't. Um, I mean, a human poison pill. Exactly. And look, if your time has come and you don't have the confidence of the board or your employees, that means you're not a good leader. Right. And so I don't quite understand all these moats that CEOs are putting in to protect themselves. I don't think it's healthy for the company and uh, or their investors or their customers, um, as opposed to be a good leader, be someone that can be trusted and make sure as you go forward, you're following the path that you laid out for yourself 
so that half the board isn't thinking, wait a minute, we're supposed to be altruistic. And the other half is thinking, no, no, we want to lead AI into the next, you know, whatever. And it just, it was so unseemly in so many ways because there was all this confusion over just what to do to get from one point A to point B. You know, I think one of Sam's, as I look at it, Sam's biggest mistake was he didn't put in a call to Sergey and Larry at Google and say, how did you transition from we will only do good in your perspective to the modern Google? How did you do that seamlessly with nobody really noticing the changes that happened? That could have saved a lot of trouble at OpenAI. Yeah, but look, as someone who covers Google, I would say it was neither seamless, <laughs> nor did nobody <laughs> notice that it was happening. I mean, the amount of time that that phrase, you know, about don't be evil came up, uh, that's, it came up for a reason, right? I mean, it, you know, A, they probably shouldn't have put it in there, but everyone kept referring to it as Google was doing these things that people thought were evil. And, you know, look, it's hard to get a company that's that gigantic and profitable and world beating and all that stuff um, without bumping up against the walls of ethics and, you know, the law and all that stuff. I admit it's difficult. That's why you hire a legal team. But um, that's, I think, different from protecting yourself as a leader so the board can't get rid of you. And by the way, to Sergey and Larry's credit, um, they seem to know when it was time to, you know, say goodbye and, and move on to other roles. I, I have a story for you to end with. I was actually in Google meeting with Eric Schmidt, the CEO, right about the time the prospectus was getting out there. And I asked him about that do no evil phrase because I'd never seen one in a stock prospectus. And Eric said, well, the boys wanted it. So the, the little bit of, I don't think that history has ever been told, but that's where it came from. And even somebody as veteran as uh, as Eric Schmidt and as smart as Eric Schmidt acquiesced. I think he saw the inevitable. And I think he thought they would be disabused of that notion as time went on. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, a good story. That's a good story. And it's too bad that you and or Eric Schmidt wasn't in there when WeWork was planning its famous, um, you know, S1 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's it for now, folks. You can find us on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.